Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. Today, I'm thrilled to have eight-time Olympic champion Apollo Ono on the show. Apollo is one of the most decorated Winter Olympians in United States history. And in this episode, we unpack what it takes to be a champion, dedication, sacrifice, and most importantly, mental fitness. Apollo walked us through how his mindset matured over the years, how he applied it to his sport, and most interestingly, how he continues to apply it today in his entrepreneurial endeavors. Apollo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Apollo, thrilled to have you, you know, join me today. On this show, we've had some of the best executives, founders, and investors in the world. Uh, you're the first Olympic champion. And so today I want to use our time to unpack mental excellence and mental fitness in the way that I think only an Olympic champion can. So why don't we start the conversation with your background and, and specifically your upbringing? You grew up with a single immigrant father. Tell us a little bit more about that experience growing up. I grew up with a single uh, parent in a single parent household. My father flew to the United States when he was just 17 years old. He didn't speak a word of English, didn't have any money. All he had was one um, Nikon camera, which he had around his neck, and he sold when he reached uh, Seattle, Washington, began his life, struggled uh, immensely, just trying to survive. Uh, I was born. Things had drastically made a big change because he decided to take full custody of me, um, really only about a year and a half, two years after I was born. And so raising a child, which my dad had no experience in or really knew what was happening or going on in a country that was unfamiliar to him, it was a challenge, it was a real challenge. But um, my dad did something that was really unique, especially when I was growing up in my early years, which he noticed that I had a tremendous amount of energy and he needed to figure out a way to direct that energy in a really positive avenue. Uh, and sport was that kind of primary outlet early on, whether it was swimming, track and field, your traditional American stick and ball sports. And then I saw this wild sport of short track speed skating on television. Um, and growing up in the Pacific Northwest, Vancouver, BC is only two and a half hours away from my house by, by, by car. And so, you know, I had basically told my father, I want to try this sport. He had said no to football. He had said no to boxing because he didn't want to have any head trauma or, um, you know, me to get injured in kind of a severe way. And so this crazy, obscure sport that most people didn't even really know about called short track speed skating was in our mind. And it was something you could do indoors because Seattle rains, you know, all of the time. And so, you know, six months later, when I was basically 12 years old, uh, my father bought me a pair of skates and that's, that's how my career actually began. And then we would drive back and forth between Seattle and, uh, and Vancouver, because that's where I would learn how to actually speed skate by, by effectively just watching and learning and talking to some of the athletes. And you, one of the things, Apollo, that I, I found really interesting in, in kind of, um, you know, conversations we've had before is, so you started seriously training, I think, at 14, and at 14 itself, you became the youngest U.S. national champion. How does that happen? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, it's a combination, I think, of luck, timing, and I, I, was, yeah, I was gifted in the sport that I had chose. Um, so when I was selected, you know, after, so the road to this kind of reaching the Olympic team and reaching the Olympic training center starts out with you skate in local competitions. And if you're proving to be on the podium, typically you get the attention of some coach that's training an actual official program in Lake Placid, New York, or in Colorado Springs or somewhere in the country. And I had been winning some local competitions. So my name had started to pop up to the top of these lists. And I was very young, right? I was 14 years old. 
Um, this was 1996. This is a long time ago. And the coaches were trying to figure out a way to pull the strings to bring me into the actual official training program because they felt with proper training, consistency, discipline, and a team, I might be able to make the 1998 Olympic team. And so that process began by them, them allowing me to train in Lake Placid, New York, and being invited to train under the tutelage of you know, very specific coaches. Uh, and that's how my career began. But I, I had no idea, right? I was just skating local competitions. I was doing very well. I had no formal training. It was at this point pretty much just raw talent with the sport. And then just watching what I saw from some of the better athletes and some of the more elite athletes and trying to copy what I saw and make it my own style when I skated. So, you know, it was basically my father and I just training together where my dad would just go to like a local ice hockey rink and I would skate around in circles and try to figure out what speed skating was about. I had no idea. What was, what was the mental load of attaining that type of recognition at that young of an age, right? Were you... Were you locked in? Did it go to your head? I mean, how did you handle it? I, I know you're a big sports fan in general, as am I. Uh, and I've, you know, I've been watching the NBA finals this past couple of weeks. Giannis Antetokounmpo had a, had a really good quote, actually, in his pregame uh, press conference yesterday. He said, the past is your ego, the future is your pride, and the present is your humility. Um, and he's mentally locked into the present. I thought that statement took a lot of maturity and obviously a lot harder to achieve than stating. So when you got that recognition so early on in life, how did you how did you handle that? Well, I think handling the recognition was challenging because I think first and foremost, when you're that young and you're performing at that high of a level, it still feels like play. It doesn't feel like performance or you know metric driven outcomes or all these things that we strive for as we start to understand the complexity and the nature of our career paths. When I was that young, I was playing. I was having fun. I was doing things naturally. And inherently designed in play is this ability to be very present at the same time. Now, how did I handle this success level that came to me at such an early age? I didn't handle it well uh, because I didn't know what the expectations were. I didn't know what I was supposed to do or what I could do and the potential that was inside me because it was coming too easy, too fast. And so while others maybe have, would have taken this opportunity and ran with it in a way that would have kind of really had this expansive career to skyrocket in terms of their overall um, you know, history of records or medals, whatever, uh, I, I kind of went the other way. And you know, when I was younger, I always had this kind of penchant against authority in some capacity. Um, I don't know if that's from growing up in a single parent household or just my rambunctious nature, but I carry that with me. And so it was very hard for me to understand that during the off season, uh, that was when you built your biggest base. That's when you kind of went behind the curtain again and you trained hard. And so uh, when we talk about like, how did I deal with that newfound success? It was really strange. I mean, imagine being 14 years old, you're now technically the leader of the team and the captain of the team. And the second and third place person on your team is like 35 to 37 years old. And they've been skating for 20 plus years. So like there was this like very weird dichotomy of, I technically was leading the team, but I legally couldn't go out and share a drink with anyone for like another, you know, seven years. So it was a really peculiar time and one in which I didn't know how to, how to deal with those things. It didn't, wasn't until much later until I really understood what was actually happening. Yeah. And it wasn't all up into the right, right? I mean, you hit a peak of success, but then you went through a pretty deep trough. Um, walk us through what happened at the, at the 98 Olympic trials. I think that's a, that's a pretty interesting encapsulation, you know, the point you were just making. Right. So 
you know, up and to the right. So I, you know, early on in my career, I was skyrocketing. I was like the phenom. It was the, my name was the buzz and all of the kind of local Olympic and, and speed skating crowds. And, um, you know, people were expecting me to make the 1998 Olympic team. My father, my family, my family in Japan had already bought tickets to see me go compete uh, and then represent, you know, my father had left Japan in pursuit of something that was very um, obscure and away from what his parents had told him he should be doing. And so now he was coming back home with like this success story, which was his son. And it was like, like this picture perfect situation and scenario. Um, and so in the 1998 Olympic trials, the whole year prior, I didn't train. I wasn't committed. I didn't understand what was at stake or the potential that actually I had within me. And more importantly, I had developed some pretty negative habits that were self-destructive and self-sabotaging in nature, mainly because, and I didn't know this at the time, but mainly because I had so much fear of putting myself out there and it just simply not being enough and maybe falling short of that external signal of expectation and then having to deal with that psychological disappointment and mental anguish and turmoil. Um, yeah, I can articulate it now. Back then I didn't know what I was doing and I, and I reacted much more emotionally uh, without words. Uh, but that's that basically was what I did through a whole year. And so I went to those Olympic trials cognitively already accepting that I was not going to make the team. Now as an athlete or as a business person or as any human, that's typically not the best attitude to go into something when you're manifesting to fall short or fail and not reach the goal or even maximize your own potential. That's what exactly what I was doing is I was, I was succeeding to that element in time because I didn't want to deal with the outcome of the what if. And to make this short story kind of uh, just, just unravel, after I had finished dead last in those Olympic trials, a year after I had been ranked number one, uh, my father had seen this inconsistency and this habit formation that was happening. And he instead pulled me aside, drove me to this area that's about three and a half hours southwest of downtown Seattle. And we would visit this, this place uh, when I was very young because it's deeply rooted in nature. There's not a lot of people there. It's a beautiful place, but um, there's really not much to do. In, in the dead of winter, it rains pretty much all day, every day. And so my father, after the Olympic trials, had dropped me off at this old cabin. It's like rickety, beat up cabin that we used to rent. Um, he was like, I don't even know how much it was, but it was, it was, it was cheap. And uh, he dropped me off there. And he said, whatever it is that you're going to do, you're going to figure out what you want to do with your life. And it doesn't matter to me if you want to continue speed skating and you want to skate another four years and try to make the 2002 Olympic team, or you want to spend full time in academia. I don't, I don't care what your decision is, but I'm seeing something here that is not what your potential is and you're throwing it away. And I think on a deeper contextual layer, what my dad was saying was this just inconsistency and this fear that I was operating from or this self-sabotaging nature that I somehow accrued over time. And it was happening in speed skating and he didn't want that to see, to see that happen later on in my life. And so I spent the next nine days at this cabin alone without my dad at the age of 15, you know, I had food, I had clothes and I was like mindlessly training. I had no idea that little journal that I was like kind of jotting down notes about like, why am I here? Right. My deep disdain and dislike for my father was growing because I felt like he was punishing me, all these things. And at the age of 15, you know, we talk about these fork in the roads, these psychological, you know, internal conversations we have with ourselves. I was having them. Like I was having these conversations that typically like grown men and women don't have until like their forties and fifties and sixties sometimes. Like, these moments where you're kind of like, 
you know, palms open, like, give me an answer, give me something here. <clears throat> and so I, I somehow came to a conclusion that I was willing to try another chance at the Olympic career path, not knowing what the outcome was going to be, highly uncertain. And, and it, by the way, people who are listening to this and watching this, the short track speed skating is still a very obscure sport, but it's a really volatile sport. So, you know, you can race the same race four different times and potentially get four different winners. And so I would be putting four years of my life or eight years of my life dedicated towards this particular path with no true guarantee that I would either make the Olympic team or go win a medal. But I still love the sport and I felt like it was something that <clears throat> that I could really pursue in the most um, kind of wholehearted, holistic way. And I was willing to take that chance and gamble. And so I called my father. He picks me up from, from the cabin and on the way home, that three and a half hour long drive, I explained him what I wanted to do. He was very happy. He was ecstatic. And from there, that's when my career actually started to take off was when I really became committed. You've said before, which I found really interesting that you, you know, even though you were, you know, kind of this hotshot that came onto the scene very quickly, you actually realized relatively early in your career that natural talent or natural physical ability wasn't going to be your edge in the sport. Um, and that actually the edge in the sport for you personally was going to be the mental side of the equation. Walk me through how you developed that understanding, right? And what did that do for your career? At what point in time did you make that flip? And then how did you actually harness that, you know, in execution? So uh, the realization of, uh, call it the, the inner game or, or the mental game, uh, actually it didn't come from me. It came from uh, two people specifically who were professionals in the realm of sports psychology who started to introduce visualization journaling, note-taking, self-talk, positive psychology, uh, breath work, mindfulness, et cetera, all those components to help me integrate into my daily ritual. That is when and how I really found that, A, there were certain physical tests that we would do as a team and internationally. And I would see that actually the numbers that I had, my raw data, my raw power, my raw, you know, VO2 max, my wing gate, how many watts I could put on a bike, they actually were kind of middle of the pack. They were never exceptional in any capacity. Now, short track speed skating is a very technical sport. Uh, and so that has a lot to do with it. So just because you're strong in the weight room doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be incredible on the ice. But I found very early that most of my attributes would be gar garnered through consistency and repetition and my commitment to the smallest of details compounded over time of days, weeks, months, years. So Apollo, talk to me a, a little bit about some of these tactics. In the visualization realm, it was it was through uh, a, a student who was actually studying at Colorado College at the time to be a sports psychologist. His name was David Creswell. Uh, and this was when I was 15 years old. Uh, he first started to teach me visualization and kind of mental resetting, so to speak, when we were actually playing either ping pong, tennis, or badminton. Uh, and there was a, there was a, the national badminton team uh, would actually train above the weight room uh, at the Olympic Training Center. Uh, they had like their own floor. And so they had, you know, th that's where they would train. And I'd go up there and we would, you know, warm up and we'd play badminton against each other. And I'm really competitive. And so, you know, I would try to beat this guy who is not an athlete training for anything at the Olympic Training Center, but he has a tennis background and he would beat me and it would drive me insane. Like I would get so upset that this guy was like, how could this guy possibly be able to beat me? I'm an athlete, I'm fit. Like I should be able to will, you know, just have more willpower than him. And then he started to kind of prompt me and ask me certain questions, which would then kind of further 
really kind of make me more upset. Like, oh, what were you thinking in that past, uh, you know, like a uh, point? Like, what was going through your head? And, you know, afterwards, he, he he effectively was trying to explain to me that I was showing these patterns of downward spiral when I would lose a point or I would hit a point to the net. Instead of resetting my mind as if, hey, it's a brand new point, I was still thinking about what was happening before. Mm. And so the series of tactics and strategies that he showed me very early were kind of when you see athletes look at their their tennis racket or their badminton racket in between points, a lot of them are actually just resetting the mind yeah. for the new point. They're actually not looking and thinking about what just happened. They may be analyzing or they may be talking internally or giving themselves clues about what they want to do next. But for the most part, they're resetting. And so that was one tactic that really helped me. And in a sport like short track speed skating, where we race Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and each day has a different distance, 500 meters, 1,000 meters, 1,000 meters, 1,500 meters, 3,000 meters relay. You have to reset no matter what just happened 5, 10, 20 minutes ago or an hour ago. And you have to pretend like you take those lessons with you, but pretend like it didn't happen. Because if you take that scarring with you, it's going to detract away from your overall performance. And so the only way that I was able to do that uh, was through consistency of kind of mindset training. So when we talk about mindfulness, being able to find to get into this flow state very quickly and easily, like a light switch, uh, pre-training. So like the two, three minutes before I do a set in the weight room or on the ice, I would have, I would just really just be simplifying my breath and focusing and trying to lower my heart rate. And this consistency and this mechanism that I was doing was allowing me to just be able to tap into that moment. Yeah, I think one of the most difficult aspects of Paulo, I've chatted with a lot of professional athletes about is actually this idea of transitioning from your sport into something else. And I think a lot of what it ultimately boils down to, you know, is actually mindset, right? And, and translating, I think that mentality and the intensity to something else, but it's obviously very different. Now you've done so successfully in business Talk a little bit more about kind of why that transition kind of in the abstract is difficult, you know, for athletes and then probably more interestingly or more helpfully, how are you able to harness kind of these mental tricks and, and mental training um, and integrate it into kind of the next phase or that next life successfully? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really happy you brought that up. <clears throat> so when we think about transition and reinvention, I immediately think about identity. The main reason why many of us, I included, by the way, uh, struggle with transition and reinvention is because whatever we were doing before that was giving us the signals of like, yeah, you're good at this. Yeah, this is what you were born for. Yes, this is what we will celebrate you for. Olympic athletes particularly were married to that feeling. They were married to that first identity. And then at the snap of a finger in an instant, when you either decide that you want to retire and move on or transition, or you are done, it's done by force because you've been injured or age, or you didn't hit your goal. That, that very powerful breakup is it's real and it carries with you for a long time. And then the next phase, which is all of the sacrifice that you've given for the sport uh, in terms of time, energy, and resources. Now you're 25, 26, 30 years old. You don't have any professional business experience. And so these are real, these are facts, right? Like you don't, you haven't worked on yourself outside of your sport that you know of. Um, you contain an incredible amount of attributes that are uncanny and really applicable towards any career path, but you don't know it yet because what am I good at? What am I passionate about? What do I need to be important? What else can I possibly do? What's my purpose? That's the most important thing. And the one question that we always kind of struggle with. And so what I have found what has worked with me is 
when I think about what does Apollo want from life and what does life want from Apollo, uh, having that kind of internal inquisitive conversation consistently throughout the year is really important for me as I get distracted by the next new deal or entrepreneurship or what I'm supposed to be doing on social or whatever those things are. We live in a very distracted world. And oftentimes we also live in a world where we are completely under the realm of FOPO, which is you know fear of other people's opinions. So a lot of us operate in this realm where we're doing things, not even for our own sake, we're still doing them for our parents, we're still doing them, which by the way, all these are okay. Just like stating kind of the obvious, right? Parents, friends, loved ones, society. And at some point during our career path, and hopefully during the pandemic at its height last year, we were able to have these internal conversations and say to ourselves, what's really important to me? How do I actually pursue things in the most effective and efficient way to make sure that I can live a life that I'm proud of, that I'm happy to live, that I'm happy to work? It's not going to be easy all of the time. <clears throat> I don't think it's designed to be that way. And, you know, a lot of times people, they can't do the things that they're passionate about or that they love, they're really good at, um, and have them all fit, and fit into that kind of ikigai, you know, Venn diagram puzzle that we're all striving to do. So <clears throat> transition and reinvention is challenging because it forces us to go against the grain. It also is introducing something that is unfamiliar, uncertain, and unknown. And we typically are always wanting to go back to our preconditioned self, because even though we know that's not the best path, it's familiar and familiar means safe and safe means secure. And so that's hardwiring in our DNA that we're always constantly battling. And what I have found is that when I go through these really difficult decisions and, and challenges of transition, I always actually now try to do things that are against the brain. And I'll give you an example, okay? Not too long ago, Ramin, I actually had a real conversation about coming up out of retirement and trying to make the Olympic team again. This is, I'm not going to tell you when I was having this conversation, but it was fairly recent. Okay? okay. And for the first time, I was saying to myself, why am I doing this? Why would I want to do this? And what do I have to prove? You've been retired for, you know, eight, 10 plus years. Like, why yeah. you're no, you're in no shape or form. And like, who, like, who do you think that you are to actually go and try this again? And so this internal conversation was great for me to have because in reality, the career path that I was going to do versus going back and doing the, the games again, yeah. going back and doing the Olympic path, I know that mastery class. I understand. I, I helped write a lot of the book on it. So it's actually an easier decision. Now, the outcome is uncertain, but it's an easier decision for me to go that path because I know exactly what I have to do. Move back to Utah. I know what kind of equipment to buy. I know yeah. what kind of training I need to do, et cetera, et cetera. But going in this other career path would be very different and unknown and uncertain and really hard. And I remember looking at kind of like my hands that were all calloused and kind of thinking to myself and kind of laughing. And I was like, Paulo, you're so funny, you know, like, 10 years later, you're still talking to yourself about things that you already know the answer to. You don't have to go back to the sport. You're seeking something that makes you in the same conditioning realm as you were before because you miss having that camaraderie and that yeah. bravado of being on top again. Don't get sucked back in because you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And I think it's really important to share new experiences, to go against the grain and utilize those attributes that we have inherently as humans to go pursue and innovate and create 
and figure out and fail. And if you fail, fail fast, get up, start again. I mean, you write these incredible bullet point lists on kind of your experience through kind of startup, increasing your, your revenue in a really articulated, very efficient, effective way. And it's simple, right? When we write these things out, it's actually simple. It's what it's when this gets involved too much is oh. when we start to paralyze and it like it, it makes it very convoluted and complex. I want to Apollo round out with a question and then I'll I'll bring in Kavita Gupta, the, the founder of FinTech TV. I'm curious how you think about motivation and if it's you know intrinsic, extrinsic. Just talk to us a little bit more kind of about where that comes from. Sure. I have both, right? I've got intrinsic and intrinsic motivations. I think that the years that go by, especially recently, my intrinsic motivations are really prioritized. And so making sure what that true north is and making an understanding uh, if I'm on that path is a really important part. And how I stay motivated is I think there's two parts there. One, I am naturally curious. Like, I just love learning. And that is that I'm so lucky to have that because yeah. even when I talk to people that aren't in the sectors of business or things that I'm interested in, I just want to learn about, I'm just curious. I'm curious about their story. I'm curious about their path. I'm curious about how they face challenges and I'm curious about their business or I'm curious about how they operate on a day-to-day -day basis. Like I'm just naturally curious. And the second part is uh, I, I like to win uh, and I like what that feels like. I mean, I, I can't help that, right? Um, I also really enjoy actually work. I, I do enjoy it. Uh, and it, it may, I don't know, even when it feels like work, um, you know, I'm, I'm in Europe right now as we're recording this. And I, I, I remember being excited to be on a plane and like breaking out my computer. And that may sound like kind of crazy and like a little weird, but I don't know. There's something like, I, I like the feeling at times of laying my head down and being like exhausted from just spending all day on the phone or working. I don't know. There's something like, I feel that is fulfilling about that aspect. Now, something that I have to be careful of as I go through this process, sorry, um, as I go through this process is I often sometimes can substitute like busy work for yeah. wanting to actually be effective, yeah. right? And for real work and meaningful work and deep work. And yeah. so that's something that I've been trying to work on much more now is I don't always have to be like grinding and grinding and grinding. I can actually have a much more balanced life as long as I'm really effective and efficient with my time. And so intrinsic, I think is the way to go. And if it's aligning with kind of your heart, your spirit, you know, your mind and your goals on the exterior side, I think you're in a great place. It's always just making sure you're keeping that in balance because the inherently designed in the way that we live, uh, we're always given external signals of what we should look like, what we should have, what you should be doing, someone else is doing it faster, better, younger than you, et cetera. And it's fine. Those are metrics and that's competition. You're always, you're measuring. Um, but at some point you still have to race your own race. Paul, this was, this was awesome. You know, you shared so many insights around, um, you know, mental health, mental fitness. I think things that, you know, folks watch on TV and aspire towards right in their, in their favorite athletes, uh, but aren't a part of the process. Right. And don't necessarily understand. And so it was incredibly helpful to hear you the way you kind of articulated it, the way you broke it down. And I think what's most interesting for our audience is, you know, we have many of the most interesting founders and investors in the world listening to this show. And I think the most interesting parallel between high performance athletes, high performance founders and investors is it's a much closer Venn diagram than what might meet the eye. And so I know many of the things that you shared today are going to be incredibly helpful for folks. So thank you. Thank you for your time. I know we'll, we'll try to get you back on here. You're coming out with an amazing book on leadership. 
So hopefully we can do a round two and kind of unpack that further. But thanks again. Thanks for joining us.